Okay, um, this is Ken again. We're down at the K building, and here beside the Mozilla team is the Tor project. Yeah, that's I'm. Hello, I'm Luna from the Tor project. Okay, so I've just given away your identity. So, so most of people listening to Hacker Public Radio will be well aware of what the Tor project is. But just in case there's somebody out there who don't know, could you give us a quick rundown on what the Tor project is? So the Tor project is a project dedicated to anonymity online. Uh, what we do is we produce software that enables people to use the Tor network, which is a network of volunteers uh, all around the world, which set up relays. And the Tor software will bounce a connection through these relays to anonymize, uh, to anonymize it. So the ISP you're using doesn't know which sites you're connecting to, and the sites you're connecting to doesn't know where you are. So your location is protected by the Tor project. So if I'm going to www.mozilla.org, it will go up my into the Tor. It will jump to some other relay, some other relay, some other relay, and then this time come out in France, the next time come out in the USA, for instance. Absolutely. Uh, every time you get a different, uh, every circuit, uh, every website you visit gets a new circuit and you exit through another nodes from the Tor network and it gives you a different IP address, which means that from the site you connect, you're, you're coming from a different location of the internet. A lot of the criticism I've heard of the Tor project is that it's very slow. It's not true. Uh, these days we push around 45 gigabits per second on the world network. I use it every single day. And I mean, it's a little bit less responsive, but I use it to watch YouTube video and it works fine. Seriously? Yeah, we, we have, uh, on the past three, four years, more and more people have been setting um, relay with, you know, in data center with massive bandwidth capacity in various countries. And we're getting more and more of them like setting up not-for-profit organization to collect money to be able to get more interesting contracts. And so the network has gone a lot better in the past three, four years. Yeah. Okay, that's fantastic to hear. Um, but So if I've got the Tor, uh, the Tor installed, my yeah. DNS is still going out through um, my local ISP. Is that correct? Or no. Well, so how you use Tor these days is uh, basically you have two ways we recommend. One is to use a Tor browser bundle. And it's, this is available on uh, Linux, Windows, and Mac OS X. And the Tor browser bundle contains Tor and a modified version of Firefox with some ex uh, privacy improvements. Uh, and if you use the Tor browser bundle, everything in that window in, of that browser will go through the Tor network. DNS will not leak. The other way we recommend using Tor is to use the Tails live operating system, which is a full operating system you put on a DVD or USB stick, and you boot your computer on it. And it's based on Debian, and it contains many desktop, like um, document producing software and also internet facing software. But it, it offers you two guarantees. One is that every, uh, every outgoing connection is going to go through Tor and it will not leave traces on the computer that you have not decided to leave. Links to that, both of those will be in the show notes for this episode. Um, but I think some people might be, then what's, how do I run a Nord? How do I help the network? So running, running um, a Tor Relay is fairly easy. It's, it's mainly about configuring the Tor daemon to enable relaying because we do not do it by default. By default, everybody is a client. 
and it's allocating resources basically. You have to decide how much bandwidth you want the Tor daemon to use, and it's going to stick to that. Um, I mean, on on many dis Linux distributions, for example, it's just as simple like you install the Tor package, edit the configuration file, restart, and you, you're done. Basically, it requires very, very little maintenance. Uh, yeah. And say I've got a very slow, you know, I've got a one megabit connection, and say I wanted to give 256 megabits. Is there even any point doing that? So, not really. Uh, a relay with this little bandwidth will not be used these days because the faster relays are really have too much. But what you can do if you have even that little network is to run a bridge. Because one thing is that the list of Tor relays is publicly known. So sensors can block Tor relays, which is a problem in some countries. People can't access the network. Uh, a bridge is a Tor node, a Tor relay that is not, it's only an entry node. And it's not publicly listed. It's only given through the bridge database or even like completely private and given hand to hand. And it allows people that are behind censorship devices to uh, access the Tor network through these um, unlisted relays. Okay, so it's a sneaky way to get into the network. Yeah, that's, that's called bridges, and it's also uh, it's as easy to set up as a relay. And it's useful even if you don't have that much bandwidth, because what we need there is IP addresses. Yeah. So the, the idea would be, say all our listeners, even half of them, set up these relays, these bridges. It, they wouldn't be used for most of the time, but it, they could be. Yeah. One other criticism of the Tor network is the um, is the fact that you you know um, not nice people uh, you know kitty porn whatever hate crimes that sort of thing you know with the good you're going to get the bad and then the contract I have with my ISP would make me liable for that sort of skunk. So uh, if you so if you run if you run a, um, a just a relay and it's not an exit node nothing is going to happen because you're only relaying encrypted traffic and uh, unless your ISP is super dumb I mean they don't have they're not going to get any abuse uh, sure if you want to run an exit node it's better to have maybe a dedicated legal body uh, and also lawyer uh, support but for example in, in the EU I, um, most lawyer agree that we are protected by the EU directive from the June 13th, 2000, Article 12, which defines the notion of what is a mere country, which is that if you do not uh, start connection, if you do not modify them in, in flight, and if you do not select them, then you're just a tube. You're a mere country, and you're not liable for what you're, you're transmitting. Ah, very interesting, very interesting. So... Um, but the amount of bandwidth that, that, that a Tor exit node uses is quite high. Like you decide, um, Tor, Tor, you decide. Tor is going to use the bandwidth you give it. If you say, "I'm dedicating five megabit per second," then it's going to stick to that. And can I limit it? That you know, say I'm only allowed 40, meg 40 gigabits a month or something. Can I limit yeah. it that? Way? There is something that is called hibernating, and we have accounting options, so you can also uh, say 40 gigabit a month or. 40 gigabit a week, and it's and it's going to hibernate when you reach the limit. Okay, fantastic. And um, the 
one question, I guess, you know, Tor is becoming very popular since the NSA thing, but the roots of the project itself was from the uh, from an American. Uh, was it the C NSA or CSA or the Naval Research Laboratory? Yes. Yeah. So um, how do I know that they? It's not a a a. a how do I know that the code has been audited and that there's no secret backdoors? It is. I mean, from the so I'm part of Debian also, and I mean, I mean, I've been watching free software projects for a while. I've never seen as many code reviews as uh, since I've been working with. We have people looking at every commit and like getting really angry if someone make, making a, a mistake. Fantastic! Uh, exactly what we want to hear. It, yeah, it, it's happening. I mean, this this thing like having people reviewing code. At least for the Tor demon, the corp, it actually there are at least three people doing it in the open that I know, regular contributors, but also probably maybe many more that you know uh, contact us anonymously or pseudonymously to report something they found. Okay, that is great news. Um, so, how ca uh, is there any way, other way we don't have bandwidth? Is there any other way we, as uh, the Hacker Public Radio audience, can help? Do you need coders? Do you need uh, reviewers? Do you need what do you need? Um, I mean, the Tor project has more than forty different coding projects at the moment. It's really uh, it's really huge actually because so you have the more like common faith like Tor itself, the demon. You have the Tor brother. And we need many help with uh, solving web fingerprinting issues, for example. Every time they had a new uh, web feature in, in Firefox, we need people to think, hmm, how is this going to affect privacy? Because, for example, when people added like, web fonts, who could have guessed, like, okay, by enumerating the fonts that you have installed on computer, I'm, going to make, I'm doing a fingerprint that is pretty like, unique. And so we need to stop that. We have a few of these... Uh, in the brother, one thing we're trying to do is also automate more uh, of, our, of our work so we can like automate builds and automate tests. So like people who want to do that, that would be very welcome. We have, uh, we're trying to find interesting way to disguise the Tor traffic into looking into something else that is not going to be uh, uh, detected by DPI boxes. Um, we started a project to redo our website because right now it's not, I mean, five years ago it was it was a project mostly interested of for hackers. Now we interest the general public, and we the website needs to be changed so we can better address these these new audiences. Um, we have I don't know we have interesting crypto problems. We have research problems. Uh, people who want to help, they should subscribe to the Tor Weekly News. Which is a monthly, uh, weekly, sorry. So, Tor Weekly News is a weekly newsletter that we send every uh, every Wednesday and contains many calls to you for help and like there's, there's things happening all the time in the community. Okay, cool. I'll put a link to that into the show notes for this episode. Yeah, please. Anything else I missed? Um, yeah, one thing you can do to help the Tor product is also to donate. Uh, the the um, I mean, the core team has, like, we, we used to rely on government funding a lot. Uh, problem is that it looks like some of the government is not that happy with everything Tor is doing. And we need more participation in, of the community into the funding of the project uh, on top of more volunteers. But 
uh, yeah, small, small money also help um, on top of everything we, we also said. Probably no harm to get the politicians involved so that they would fund the tour project. I mean, we, we it's the thing, anonymity loves company. If we want an anonymity network to be successful, we need every kind of different users uh, to get involved, and that's how you make it successful. I mean, because if it's only the army and you see a connection to that network, right, it's, it's obvious that it's the army and an enemy network. Uh, with Tor, we have many different people using it, and so we need also many different uh, sources of funding so no one has doubts that, you know, we're, going, we're doing it for the greater good. Gotcha. Okay, perfect. Thank you very much for the interview, and uh, tune in later on for more exciting interviews from the K-Building. I'm coming up to talk to Eric. How are you doing, Eric? I'm doing great. Thanks. You're here promoting the EPF SUG. What is that? Well, that's a very nice way of uh, coming around the problem of expressing or saying our the acronym in one way without spitting on anybody. It's like EPSUG. It's European Parliament Free Software User Group. Okay, that's a, that's a mouthful, it has to be said. Yes. So you're basically a log for the European Parliament. Uh, a what? A uh, Linux user group for the European Parliament. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a user group. And we are... Uh, we, we, I don't know what the audience really of... Uh, but since this is the uh, is hacker radio... Basically, anybody, English-speaking people from around the world, America, all around Europe, we have people listening in Sweden. Okay. Anyway, maybe I can then expand on... So, uh, there, we are a couple of people in the European Parliament. We work in the Parliament, in the administration, on the technical side, uh, in different functions. We are not politicians. Uh, we're not members of the European Parliament, but we are working for the Parliament in different functions. And... Uh, so you're like sysadmins and stuff like that? No, well, the, the, some of, uh, I'm working uh, in the Secretariat of the Greens with the Legal Affairs Committee. There's one uh, 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 member that is, uh, is working for the translation unit to make sure that there are multi- the translation works. Uh, well, one, is a member, one is an assistant to an MEP. Uh, so we have different functions, but we are not political. Elected representatives. No. And, and this is where the name EPSO comes in, maybe to explain it. We, we are a, um, a social movement-based free software user group. So we are focusing on the reasons for the... Uh, this, if you look at Debian, yeah, they have the social contract. Uh, you look at the GPL license, first paragraph, it's about promoting freedom. So uh, in the parliament, uh, you can... If you're an MEP, if you're a politician, you can do certain things. Uh, you have the right to do certain things uh, within the premises of the parliament. You can have a, a friends of sport, for example. They get together and, and, and be friendly with sport. You can have a philosophical circle. You can talk about religion or you can invite uh, different social movements-based thing uh, organizations and have activity in the parliament. So in that uh, legal space or framework... We thought maybe you can also be a saint in the church of Emacs or, or, or do things that is uh, related to the social change the, um, that free software is 
promoting and is a part of without being entangled in industry lobbying or other um, policy um, uh, developments that are more political. Gotcha. Okay, there was a very long explanation no, for this no, for no, the name. That, uh, it's uh, deliberately chosen uh, for that purpose, not only to be really difficult to pronounce, but also to be uh, make sure that we are doing uh, what we're doing is we're in favor of social uh, change based on the values of the free software movement. So there's five MEPs as patrons and 14 people working in the EP as joined as members and you have 50 supporters. So this is a very Brussels type of user group. Well. Yeah, the European Parliament in, uh, has uh, its main seat in Brussels, and we are working in Brussels. And uh, but the members that are, um, um, I mean, the patrons are MEPs from all over the world, all over the, all over Europe, and all from all political groups. Just for the people who might not know, the European Parliament is, is headquartered sometimes here in Brussels, for the most part, and Strasbourg as well. Yes. Do you have a also? Do you also have one in Strasbourg, or is it just located no, here? We, we uh, no, we are kind of. We could have meetings in, in Strasbourg too, or even in Luxembourg, where there is a third European Parliament. <laughs> but to keep things simple, you could say we are mostly having our activity in Brussels. Yes. And how is this relevant to any of the people walking past? What's your What's your goal here today? The. EPSUG was started here. It started with a call in 2011 uh, in one of the sessions here to ask FOSTEM participants and the community that comes here for help. Uh, many of the people here, there's a lot of organizations that are here that are have been pushing for free software and open standards in different ways for many, many years. And they, many have been engaged in different policy and different legislation processes. And an experience back there, we have had many attempts to call on the parliament to go for, uh, to use free software and open standards, but it has been difficult to make anything happen because you can only go so far with petitions and you can only come so far with political pressure. So when uh, after the elections 2009, there were a couple of people in the parliament that are rooted or come from this movement that got jobs. So we're working in the parliament and then we thought maybe if we have a user group inside the parliament that could bring all these issues a bit closer to the heart of where decisions are taken. So our guys on the inside basically. That is the plan. Yes. So, the secret self. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a, I wouldn't say it's a terrorist organization, but the idea is the same. Right, I'm going to have to... Uh... <laughs> no, well, you, are, you will understand what I mean. It's really to have presence in the parliament to be able to talk with the people that work there about the things that many people on the outside have been asking for for a long, long, long time. Yes, fantastic. So how can we help you? Well, uh, there are many ways you can help. The simplest way is just to become a supporter of EPSUG and you do that by submitting to the publicly archived mailing list your supporter statement so that you declare in public why you support EPSUG for the, and the reasons you do that. And so we have uh, now the 50 supporters have all each their own statement on the website. So that's, so any EU citizen theoretically could do that? Well, anyone in the world can be a supporter because 
it's it's unlimited. It's and then you you can also subscribe to the mailing list and just participate in the discussions without making this public statement if you don't want to. So. Uh, what what good would that do? I, I I say this is this is obviously a good idea. So how how is that going to help? What what's going to change because I've just become a supporter of well, um, th- that will still exist after three years of efforts to have this discussion happening inside is wouldn't have been possible without outside support and people on the outside helping with not only um, like awareness, but technically. So uh, EPSUG was started on the basis that that you can actually use free software in the parliament. And the first uh, software that made that possible was a bridge to use email over uh, an IMATS or or a uh, Dove mail and and DoveCut workaround so that you could actually use your free software mail client with your parliamentary, uh, parliamentary address. You're, you could read and write your... So I've been working on the free software laptop in the parliament for the last three years. Thanks to support, yeah, Dovemail and, and supporters on the outside of the parliament that has helped me to maintain that, that, um, that platform. And now um, we have a, a fantastic uh, cooperation with the Debian uh, community where there's a, uh, there has been prepared... Uh, something that is called Debian for Parliaments and where maybe the European Parliament will have the first dedicated distribution for Parliaments to be implemented. And that's like, uh, and that is not done by people inside, it's done by Debian developers. And um, so then that, that lowers the barrier for so it becomes, if there's a Debian distribution for us then the only thing you need to do is actually to use it in the parliament. And then the, 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 it becomes easy to talk on the inside saying, hey, here's my laptop, it uses Debian Par, it's a distribution made for us, and I can do email, encryption, I can do uh, maybe use Pigeon or some other XMPP uh, protocol, and I can do stuff, and it's all free software, and verifiable, and you know, all the features that free software has, that has become increasingly important the last year when we now know that infrastructure is more or less is is compromised and produced by EU citizens obviously well yeah free software is can can be produced and much of it is actually and you can see it here at FOSTEM year after year you have well I don't know how many thousand are here this year but it's it's a growing community which means there's a growing economy that means uh, if I would be a politician, I would say growth and jobs. It's, it's what this you can get with this. Uh, uh, yeah, basically, if public, public procurement would use tax money more directly investing in software that is made by programmers from Europe that anybody in the world could use, of course, but it's like... Why do you take the detour to, from the decision to have a, that you go over an, a foreign country or other economy that takes a cut on tax money when we can do the same thing ourselves? 
Yeah, particularly when quite a lot of those companies declare their profits in Ireland anyway. So. Yeah, it, does, it's like, it doesn't really make sense. It also doesn't benefit the American economy so much no. either. So, so for our American listeners, don't worry, we're not trying to take your, your money here. You, you don't have it in the first place because it's coming funneled through the, the Dutch-Irish sandwich. Well, okay, uh, you know more about that than me. But uh, it's, it's, uh, to me it seems that the... the uh, Developers and users, when they have as little middlemen as possible and, and communicate with each other about the software they use and what they need, that, uh, why don't we go there? Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, you've got a brochure here, and I will. Do you have a link to this in the show? Do you, do you have a website? You do have yeah, a website. The, the website for uh, it's uh, epfsug.eu. That is European Parliament Free Software User Group.eu. And on that site, um, right now the pamphlet is not there actually, it's in the mail archive. So I would have to put it up on the. Yeah, it's, it's okay. It's, yeah. I can also. Uh, but we have a very cute uh, logo or mascot, yes. Edge the Hedgehog. And it's. Uh, also, it um, comes from a, it's a contribution from the Debian community, actually, and it's freely licensed. So, if you want to use it for other purposes, I guess it's fine. So, I've got a, f- a few questions here, just general yep. questions. You've got an Etherpad um, instance. How have you been finding Etherpad? We used it for our New Year show, and it was quite good actually. Etherpad was <laughs> installed by one of our supporters says, why don't we try this to, you know, just put our idea somewhere and we can edit stuff together. And now, to me, it's uh, wherever I go in different contexts. I was at the EU hackathon or European Parliament hackathon last weekend here in Brussels and, and there were Etherpads. So, you know, that's where you, many people work on Etherpads. It's kind of standard. Um, how many people have you had on it at one time? Uh, on the pad, I don't know. The meetings we have had in the parliament, there have been like almost uh, 60, 70 people coming, 30, 10. And then we have meetings on the out. Yeah, so it's, it varies a bit on on the uh, who is organized or which MEP is uh, hosting the event. Thank you very much for the interview. Hi everybody, my name is Ken Fallon and we're down here at the KDE stand and I'm talking to Jonathan Riddell. How are you, Jonathan? Good afternoon. I'm feeling quite tired after a long day, actually, but I'm happy. Okay, what, what have you been up to? Uh, today I've been on the KDE stall and we're demonstrating KDE on Windows. We're demonstrating KDE Connect, which is a program to make your desktop talk to your Android phone. And we're demonstrating KDE Frameworks 5, the next generation of software from KDE. Okay, so... Um What's your involvement with the KDE project? Um, I started off as a developer. I did, I did Umbrella UML Modeler originally and, and did works on a number of other things. KDE Promo as well. I edited KDE.news for many years. And then I had to get a real job. And I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, work on Kubuntu, the flavor of, of Ubuntu distribution that ships with the KDE software. Had you been working, has you been working as part of the Debian project prior to that? Or? No, I never worked on Debian directly. I, I just took an interest in 
Kubuntu because I heard about this project where an African spaceman was working on something that would revolutionize the distribution world and Katie wasn't involved and I so I blogged about it and said Katie guys you need to get involved with this this is really important yeah. and uh, that blog it was the top Google hit when Ubuntu was first publicly launched and so Mark's uh, employee Jeff Waugh he phoned me up and said do you want to work on this because we need somebody from Katie so I, I did okay cool the um, there's been a bit of um, controversy I guess within the Ubuntu team you're no longer uh, funded by Canonical or what's the story going on there right so they made my post redundant and along with a number of other projects that Canonical was supporting like Launchpad and Bazaar they they took down took down their level of support put it into maintenance mode um, said uh, we're not going to be able to pay you to work on this directly anymore um, so we as a community Kubuntu got a bit downcast and um did some soul searching, wondered if we really wanted to carry on doing this, was there a need um, but it turned out that there was and there's enough people to support it who wanted to keep it carrying on, who needed it carrying on we got lots of people saying, James I've just installed this in my university and, and uh, we, need, we need this to carry on otherwise I'm fired or something um, so where there's support then there's a way and, and we managed to carry on. You're working for Blue something or other? Blue Systems is a company, which is a nice company that supports KDE in a number of ways, and they um, employ a number of KDE developers working on KDE frameworks, working on Kubuntu, and and a few other projects. This seem to be the Area 51 of the free software uh, free software movement. Nobody seems to know where they are or where they're based. It's a slightly surreal world that I tend to move in. Um, so I, I used to have the privilege of working for an African spaceman, and now I work for a German butcher who, unlike the African spaceman, isn't, isn't quite so loud and brash and, and isn't such a personality. Uh, but he is also a nice guy who wants to help out, and, and he's got deep pockets, and he uses them to help out KDE. So, but why KDE? Why, where's the business, business interest? Or? Ah, business interest, that's so old-fashioned. Is everything about money to you? He just wants to help out. <laughs> cool, cool. Excellent. So how did you become a, a developer? developer? Uh, when I started learning programming at university the, the lecturers told us this is how you write a program in Java and I would go, ah, but that's how you write that program but how do you how does a full program work and the only way to actually teach yourself how programming works is, is to use open source free software, to download actual programs that solve actual problems in the real world work out how they work of course once you start doing that you find bugs and then you start fixing the bugs so then you get involved in, in communities and and um, adding new features and then I took over whole projects um, so that's in my opinion the only good way to teach yourself programming and also it has the interesting side effect of getting involved in free software What university did you go to? That was Stirling University in, in Scotland I went to And was free software open source software so prevalent there that you knew in you knew instinctively that that's the way you should go no not at all they, they didn't use it at all they, they so how did you find out about it extremely that? wary of it they only had Windows on their computers they only had Java as a programming language um, so I, I fortunately I had my own computer at home it was pretty slow and basic but it was enough to install SUSE on and, and SUSE came with KDE of course so yeah, but how, did you, how did you find out about SUSE in the first place what, what was your introduction to free software in the, in the very first place Oh, I think one of my friends said, here's this SUSE desk, that, that's how you get involved in this stuff. Yeah, exactly. And that had KDE on it. Back then, a lot of distros seemed to have KDE on it. Now, not so much. 
is there there's a, is still there? plenty of distros that do of course Kubuntu I recommend is the best one um, but for example Fedora over at Red Hat they've, they've also had really bad support for KDE but it turns out that all of their business users who use desktops use KDE um, and so they've got a team of about half a dozen people now just working on KDE at Red Hat um, which is an awful lot more than anybody else has um, and that's just because it makes business sense their customers use it um, OpenSUSE went back to they've always been on the fence about we, we don't want to support anything by default but they they now take the KDE box by default um, and and Ubuntu in general they've moved away from using using GNOME for their own interesting business reasons the, they seem a lot less uh, they don't want to use community made software in a lot of cases uh, so they make their own desktop now uh, which means that we've had a lot of people saying yeah, I want I want communities, that's why I do this, that's why I use this stuff, so I, I want to look around, oh, here's the biggest community within Ubuntu that's um, not not organized by Canonical, it's us, so we get quite a lot of users that way. Do you think there'll ever come a day when you're going to have to rename the project and call us K something else? Uh, we have looked at that. When when we, when we Canonical stopped doing commercial support for it, um, there was somebody else who, who saw this as a business opportunity, wanted to set up commercial support, um, but he got blocked from by Canonical from doing that for a number of months because um, when Canonical also withdrew support from other stuff like Bazaar and Launchpad, they didn't really have very active communities, so they, they just quietly sat in a corner by themselves. But Kubuntu, maybe Canonical were taken by surprise, but we, we have a very active community of very enthusiastic users who... Uh, who made loud noise and said, that, what the heck is going on? This is no good. Um, so when we tried to get the business support deal, they, they didn't really have any processes in place to make that happen. Uh, so we did look at changing the name for that there, and, and we did brainstorm that, but then Mark Shuttleworth shut it down and said, no, we kicked you out if you changed the name. So we, we didn't do that. So you're still an integral part. You still contribute upstream to the archive within Ubuntu, do you? Yes, it's all the same archive. Um, us us flavors the Kubuntu flavor is no different from the Ubuntu Unity flavor in that it's just a selection of software from the archive um, and I'm a release manager for Ubuntu I'm on that team and I, I'm an archive admin as well so if you upload a package then it's me who has to approve it so there have been plenty of cases where Canonical have uploaded a package after some freeze because their designers and artists are not always respectful for freezes and I've had to reject it because it, it doesn't fit in with the cycle so what's the, um, I think some of the criticism I've heard of KDE in the past, also coming from myself, will be how, how big it's gotten recently. And other people have, you know, caused people to look at lighter desktops like uh, Razer QT, which is now going to be LXQT. Um, there was talk for a while of doing a lighter weight version of KDE, that KDE was, it was possible to run KDE in a lightweight mode for older laptops. Is that something that you would consider doing, like KDE light? Ah, interesting. Um, no, there have been a number of people who have gone, this uses up too many resources, um, but if you if you remove all the shiny graphics bling from KDE, then it ends up just being a less interesting desktop, and you'd be better off using XFCE or, or one of the other alternatives like that. Um, the current uh, focus of development within KDE is KDE Frameworks 5, which is modularizing KDE Libs to make it so that if you write a an application, you don't need to have to bring in the whole of KDE Libs, which is a big dependency. Um, so that's been split up into 55 libraries now. Um, there's a tech preview out, which 
uh, I've just finished packaging for Kubuntu. So people who develop KDE or Qt applications can just pick the bits that they want in their applications without having to bring in the whole load. So we're getting a lot of interest from Qt developers now saying, oh, actually, KDE, I, I really want that library. I didn't want it before because I added several hundred megabytes of, of uh, extra memory use. Now it just it's an extra megabytes, a few extra classes. Excellent, I'll bring in that. Yeah, I think my, my use case is uh, Kate, and then Kate on a really slow laptop, and suddenly you've got lots and lots of other stuff coming in. Could you just explain to me um, the underlying things that's behind uh, KD that's running in the background and the benefits of them, particularly the indexing and the, um, the is it Anaconda? Not the Anaconda. The so a couple of controversial features would be Akinadi yeah, for... Could you talk about the controversial features and why they're not? Caching KDE PIM and NIPAMUG for indexing the whole of the, the disk system. Um, Akinadi had... It's had occasional QA problems because it has to work with a database and sometimes those databases, as, as distro packages, we're not quite used to um, integrating them with a as a running process because that's that's for server people to do. Um, for the most part, that's been sold for a number of releases now and um, that that's running quite nicely. And from as far as I'm aware, the Nipipunk one, on the other hand, that... What's that, the purpose of that? That's got a silly name and it indexes everything on your, on your hard disk, um, which is very, very useful and, and um, that's po- possible to do in such a way that it becomes an essential feature that you just search your, your computer. Uh, but it was implemented as a research project funded by the European Union um, in a bit of an academic way. It, it's been implemented using uh, Sparkle, this weird queer language, and, and uh, Virtuoso. It originally used Java, and now it, but it, it does, that was dropped, but it still uses Virtuoso as a, another obscure non-SQL database. Um, so that that's useful. It's cool, but it does it is very resource hungry. And good news is it's all being replaced. The Vishesh Shanda, who's uh, at Polstem this weekend, he's writing a new library called Blue, which uh, is much more lightweight indexer. And people who have um, indexed their whole source code tree of KDE, they say, "Oh, I've got a, this five gigabyte index file that Nipamuk has." Um, but with Baloo, that, that's gone down to about 500 megabytes as an index file. So it's a significant reduction, and it will be much, much faster. And what if you... Will it be possible to do an install where you... I don't do desktop search, I don't want it, I don't have an integrated payment, I don't want that to sort of modularize it. Um, so as part of KDE Frameworks 5, that, that will be easy for application developers to pick and choose and for users to turn it on and off. Within Kubuntu, we have uh, Kubuntu low-fast settings, which is a package that you can install if you if you want the a, a slightly different configuration that has these things turned off by default. Kubuntu low fast settings. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yes, yes. So what else what else have you got on here? What what are you doing? What's what's the KDE boot look like? Uh, we are we are selling a bunch of t shirts, we're selling or giving away a bunch of badges and we have our most exciting product is a new Conky the Dragon knitted doll. Um, which has been knitted by one of our friends from South America. And as with all uh, binary products, it, it comes with a source code because we're open source, of course. So you get a list of instructions of how to knit your own as well with it. So if you have a suitable compiler for that, that you can you can create new ones. Fantastic. Um, I see down there that you've got KDE on Windows running and KDE Connect, KDE Framework 5. Can you tell us about what those projects are? Maybe we should walk down that far. 
So KDE Software is written Qt, which is a framework that can be ported to any um, to Windows and Mac, and so of course KDE programs can be ported to Windows and Mac. Um, why would you do that? I know why you'd run a, want to run a KDE Qt program on, but why the whole KDE suite? So you you wouldn't typically. You can run Plasma on Windows, but yeah, there's no practical reason why you would do that before the individual applications. So uh, here we're demonstrating Crito, which is a painting application. It's a world-class yeah. painting application. Uh, it beats the socks off of if uh, GIMP, which is some that's for photo editing. So this is for painting works of art. Yeah. Uh, beats the socks off a lot of Adobe stuff and is certainly a fraction of the price at nothing. Um, yeah. And and. They, they have an awful lot of users on Windows because a lot of artists still like to use Windows. Yep. Um, and that integrates really nicely with, with tablet, uh, graphics tablets or drawing tablets. Um, so that's got a lot of users and commercial support as well from KO who are here for and, anybody. And how does that work technically? How was Does the Kira project need to be ported or is it just sufficient to install the KDE libraries on Windows and then just mm-hmm. go? It, it has to be recompiled against Qt on Windows yeah. and KDE libraries on Windows. Um, that That is quite a big and clumpy job at the moment. So as part of KDE Frameworks 5, as I say, this modularization, um, all of those will be ported to Windows. Um, that's a fairly trivial process because Qt makes that a trivial process. Um, and as those are ported to Windows, then uh, Krita and everything else can be compiled against them. And there, what are the advantages then of just uh, not writing a native Qt application in in, uh, in the Qt framework as opposed to using a KDE? Well, part of the KDE framework is that there is no particular difference. Uh, so a lot of what what we've been doing over the last year is taking code out of KDE Libs and just putting it in Qt. Yep. Um, so if you want your your uh, printer dialog to be able to search through cups or something that used to be a feature only in KDE now it's just been put in Qt oh fantastic and because the Qt project that's been opened up as an open source collaborative project it's a lot easier now just to get patches into Qt so it's your policy to push stuff upstream now as opposed to fantastic didn't know that Um, so obviously then other other Qt other Qt platforms should be able to benefit from that like phones and stuff do you have a do you have any goal for doing a mobile device? Um, so Qt got ported to Android as part of a KDE project. KDE supports any consumer-based project, and one of those was porting Qt to Android. That became so successful that it's now moved to Qt and has been taken on by the Qt project proper. Uh, it's now commercially supported by Digia, their, their commercial sponsors, um, and is, is a really useful development platform for developing on Android. And because it's cross-platform, relatively easy to then develop on iPhone which also has a work in progress cute, cute port Okay, what else do I have here KDE Framework 5, when, when are we going to see that coming down the pike uh, That's got a tech preview out now I just finished packaging it for Kubuntu so for developers it's there and it's ready to develop against uh, that'll have a 1.0 release probably about June is the schedule um, but we'll start porting KDE applications to KDE Framework 5 now for well, the, the user there's no big swap over for there um, so the, unlike the change from KDE 3 to KDE 4 it won't be a, a big user visible difference and those applications can live side by side running on KDE Libs 4 and KDE Frameworks 5 but bits will be tidied up and, and made a bit shiny and clearer so that will be a transparent thing your app guess will, will just bring that down yes that, you'll just get that but what will be possibly less transparent is in the next Kubuntu we hope to change to Wayland um, so, dun, 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 dun. 
the, the big move away from X is, is probably happening this year. Um, Quinn, the window manager, has been working on Wayland for some time now, and uh, individual applications are starting to be um, removing X dependencies, making sure that they can be compiled against Wayland. Um, so hopefully in, in our next Kubuntu release in April, that's a long-term support, no big changes. The one after that in April, quite likely we'll be will be shipping Kitty Frameworks 5 and Wayland so that, that'll be a technical challenge anyway I bet it will be uh, one thing about that is uh, with your background that so many deployments are out in the field of enterprise a lot of enterprises tend to use X-forwarding for forwarding applications that are well behind bastion hosts and firewalls and stuff uh, what's the Wayland's Wayland's not going to work like that anymore so will you still be able to how, will, how are we going to do that how am I going to forward the next session if you talk to a Wayland developer about this um, most of them say that that's something that people talk about but nobody actually does oh no we use it I guarantee you, you we use that ok um, you need to talk to Wayland developers but I, the initial way to do it will be by VNC ok that's not ok fair enough right you're not the person to talk to about this no. ok um, and what's KDE Connect why uh, is it needed, actually? Well, KD Connect is a program that you run on KD and another program you run on your Android phone to get your Android phone to talk to KD and integrate in various ways. Um, Why would I do that? Surely a USB Connect is enough. If you have a USB Connect, you need to have a cable. Here, this just talks over Wi-Fi, so you can walk around your house. Um, if you get a text message on your phone, then that'll appear on your laptop. Ah! And the other way around. What else? Send, send a text message from your laptop uh, through your phone. You can also control your music on your phone, so I use that if I'm if I'm in my kitchen. I play my music in the office, um, and if I want a different track, I can just change it on my phone as a portable uh, remote control. Yeah. Uh, but also, if I get a phone call on my phone, that will stop the music from playing on my computer, so that I can answer the phone call without without interruption. Can you take a phone call from? Can, can, will you be able to use a uh, client on your laptop to use a headset to take a phone? Work in progress, phone? yes, work in progress. <laughs> oh, this is cool, this is cool. Listen, how can, um, what's KDE written in? Um, most of it, most of our KDE software is written in C++ and using Qt. And if you're not a C++ expert, can, is there anything that we can do to help? Uh, there's, as a coder, the, the, we've got a bunch of stuff coded in Python and a bunch of other stuff coded in JavaScript, so that's, that's always there for help. And we also have an awful lot of work for non-coders in terms of promotion, publicity, uh, artwork, uh, documentation, and user support. Okay, um, I can't let you go without bringing up uh, this topic. What support are you going to have for accessibility? Because I hear the reputation for KDE and accessibility isn't too good at the minute. Mm, KDE accessibility is... The KDE accessibility project has a lot of features that don't exist on any other any other free software or desktop. Um, Qt 5 has gained gained accessibility and talks to the same protocol as as GNOME talks, so it, it uses just the same tools as GNOME does. So you'd be able to use eSpeak without issue? or uh, how, Are you the best person to talk to about the speech agent and how that works? No, the, there's a speech recognition engine called yeah. Simon, which you can use to control your whole desktop. Yeah. Um, that's written by a guy called Peter Nash, who I don't think is here this weekend, but but his demonstrations are extremely impressive. Yes, um, and 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 as far as getting the screen to read back to you, how how easy is that to configure? Uh, KDE Text to Speech Engine is has been renamed and is maintained by 
Joseph, somebody else whose name I don't remember. That's fine. <laughs> I can't expect right. you. It's been a long day. So how many conferences do you go to? Uh, varies a lot. We, we used to have UDSs, and one of my grumbles was that Canonical stopped using doing UDSs because um, that that was a lot, big part of what made Ubuntu a great project to contribute to as a, as a community. Um, now that's gone, we still do uh, Academy of the KDE conference, and we've come to first time here, but we also had a have our meeting in Munich. So Munich has a big rollout of Kubuntu and the company that does that has a big meeting every year where they invite anybody who wants to come. So we have a big Kubuntu meeting there. Okay, what's your, um, how is your cooperation with the GNOME project? Um, by the way, you're licensed under what? What license do you release KDE under now? Uh, KDE software is LGPL3 for libraries and, and uh, GPL2 plus for libraries and GPL2 plus for most of the software. Okay, so no issue there as far as freeism freedom. No, no okay. we've Super. always been free. And uh, how is your cooperation with the other uh, desktops like GNOME and uh, Enlightenment or whoever? Free desktop we'll, project. We'll take their beer off them quite happily. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Is there anything else uh, that I've missed here in the discussion? Uh, we have a successful room of talks who are talking about, uh, as a panel t talk just about to start, where the, the Kitty Foundation, EV and Gnome Foundation will be talking about their respective ways of organizing a, a community and funding it and so forth. Okay, cool. Any other way that we can uh, we can support Kubuntu? Uh, by using it and spreading it and, and sharing it. Well, the Kubuntu Lite will be... Uh, I'll uh, give that another go, I have to say. Well, Jonathan, thank you very much for taking the time for the interview and links to the uh, sessions that we're here at Fostown will be in the show notes for this episode. You're very welcome. Hi everybody, this is Ken here again at Fostown 2014. <laughs> at Fostown 2014, I'm done K-building and I'm talking to Paul. Hi, doing good? So Paul, we knew each other from... From way back, uh, when working, we were working in the same outfit in Holland. So, uh, yeah, we know each other, but we've gone our both uh, our separate ways. Uh, but nice to bump into you here again. So. so, who are you working for? What do you do? Uh, uh, I'm a support engineer for Acquia. Yeah. Acquia is uh, support. We are, our main business, we support Drupal and open source web CMS. And uh, it's been doing good. We're, we're growing like hell and uh, expanding all over the world. I'm, uh, so what is Drupal for, for anybody Drupal who doesn't is, know? Uh, is <coughs> it's three things. It's a um, web CMS, a content management system. But you can also see it as a, a framework for building web applications. But the third thing is what I think is most important. It's a great community yeah. of people who share knowledge and, and, and work together to build this awesome open, project, open source project. Uh, what what license is it released under? Uh, it's a GPL, GPL2. Okay, cool. And um, how big is the community? It's hard to estimate. I think we just passed over a millionth user on Drupal.org, uh, hundreds of thousands for sure. Uh, I think only if we have like more than 1,800 committers right now in Drupal 8, if my stats don't, don't fake me. So, yeah, it's a, it's a huge community. We have a lot of people contributing to the Drupal Core uh, project itself, but there's also, I think, 45,000 modules that you can plug into Drupal and it's also all open source as well. Yeah. So typically the type of work that you'd be doing will be uh, doing websites for people, I guess? No, uh, Acquia doesn't develop websites. We help people 
build awesome websites. So we, we don't do development ourselves, but we, are, we, are, we have a hosting service, yeah. we have a consultancy service, and we provide support. So if a development firm you know, needs some help, uh, getting some advice, how would you do this? Hey, we have this bug. Something's wrong with my website. I don't know what it is. You can call us, and uh, we're glad you help. Yes. Well, if there's a problem, you'll be there. Right. Cool. Um, well, I think one of the criticisms a lot of people have about Drupal is how difficult it is to migrate when compared with something like WordPress. Depends on where you're migrating from. If you're coming from WordPress, it's fairly easy because there is uh, quite a few uh, known projects how you how you can do uh, that transfer. Uh, Drupal itself comes. And the new version will have a migrate module built-in, which is a contributed module right now, and it's getting better. So, yeah, uh, Drupal it has a reputation for being a bit difficult to learn as well. It's, it's quite complex. Uh, then again, that's also getting a lot better with the new upcoming version we're building on right now, which should be released this year. So do you work on the main Drupal code? or uh? No, no, I'm, I'm not actually a coder. I have a few contrib modules, but I'm more a sysadmin guy. I'm a support guy, so I know my Drupal, but not from a core perspective or a programmer's perspective. Gotcha, gotcha. So, this is your first FOSS then? Yeah, absolutely. What do you think of it? It's, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's good to feel this vibe of lots of energy, you know, lots of nerds. Quite a few uh, familiar faces so far already, so that's good. Uh, uh, looking forward to attending some talks tomorrow. I didn't have a chance to do that today. The hallway talk is usually quite interesting as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the... The scale of this event really has blown my mind. It's 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 how many people are here? I, I don't know. It's thousands. thousands. Sure. It's yeah, like yeah, you. Yeah. It's like if you want to experience this, go to a big university in a capital city, and on any day, and that's the number of people that are here. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. The, this hall that we're in now is just one of the just one of the halls, and it's as full as I've seen at many conferences. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, in, in the Drupal community, we have our Drupal cons. We do them twice a year, three times a year now even, because we just included Australia as one of the destinations. Do you get to go to that? Uh, Australia, I didn't. Never. <laughs> maybe a little plug. The next DrupalCon in Europe is going to be in Amsterdam. I'm going to be a volunteer for that. So that's going to be awesome. Yes. We're expecting between two and 3,000 people there. So, And we're growing still, so maybe we're a bit, a bit, you know, a bit cautious on those estimates. But uh, we have high hopes that it's going to be a great conference. When is that on? It's uh, going to be the last week of September. I don't, the exact date slipped my mind. But uh, go to Amsterdam.drupal.org and uh, you'll get there. Cool. Thank you very much. A link to that will be in the show notes for this episode. And tune in for another exciting ex- segment from FOSTEM 2014. 2013? 14. <laughs> Hi everybody, my name is Ken Fallon. This is day two of FOSTEM after a very long and strange night trying to navigate around the Brussels metro system. Made it back to the K building and I'm standing beside the uh, Firefox Mozilla stand and talking to Brian King who is European Community Builder. What do you do for a living, Brian? Uh, so basically, my job is to support our contributor communities, uh, mainly in Europe, but also around the world. Um, so I do a bunch of things. You know, I, wor- I work with uh, local communities in each country. I work with Mozilla reps who are organizing the event here in Fosdem. Um, I oversee mozillians.org and a few other bits and pieces. So you're a full-time employee of Mozilla? Correct, yes. So how did you, how did you end up? At that uh, at that job, what was the where did you start? 
Uh, well, I've been a Mozillian for a long time, 13 or 14 years, so I don't know if you remember our old uh, dinosaur logo. That's me. I'm that dinosaur. So I was, uh, I, was a, I was a volunteer for 11, 12 years before I came on staff. Uh, started as a developer, uh, found a niche. I was doing add-ons for Firefox, so I was working with Mozilla Code every day. Um, became more and more involved in community, went to events and so on, and that's how I ended up in this position doing community work. Okay, cool. So what have we got here on the stand today? Uh, we're mainly showing off Firefox OS. Yep. So Firefox OS is... This our, is the mobile phone thing. That's correct. It's a mobile operating system. Um, and we released in 2013, we've released in 18 countries. Uh, we're releasing in more countries around the world this year. And, um, yeah, um, um, you know, Firefox OS is a, a web operating system. Uh, we believe the web is the platform. We believe it's the future, and, and uh, that's what Mozilla does. You know, we want to keep the web open. We want to offer developers, users, and everybody choice. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, how has the uptake of the phone been? Uh, has it been well received? Has it? Uh, has you've got quite a few carriers more than say right. Ubuntu, for example, or Ubuntu Phone? Yeah, that's right. We went down the route of. of um, partnering with carriers you know we wanted to get phones into the into the hands of, of, of consumers you know um, we wanted to really make an impact and to do that in the mobile industry um, we, we partnered with with people who know how to do that and uh, it's been quite successful so far um, we've launched in certain countries in eastern europe uh, in latin america and yeah yeah the, in, in general um, it's been positive you know there have been a few bumps along the way but uh um, um, you know, we're doing okay. <laughs> well, um, as luck would have it, too, our episode on I think Thursday was about, uh, or last week was, two of the guys were discussing the the plans for this year, and one of the biggest disappointments they had, for it to say this, is the uh, the developer version. He got version one dot one of the phone, and it's proving very very difficult uh, to update to uh, get a new version of it he, he, the developer felt as a developer phone he had nothing to be able to contribute back because of the uh, you know the development has moved on to 1.3 now is that correct or yes yes uh, even even beyond 1.3 you know we've got different uh, branches so uh, yeah developers are looking even further but but 1.3 is is the most stable branch right now yeah so if, if a developer purchases a phone now, what guarantee do they have that they were going to be able to uh, purchase it deliberately to develop apps? But he can't do that because there yeah. are bugs on version 1.1 and he can't update it because the install process is, is very hairy. He has to c- compile the whole stack. Right. right. Um, well, yeah, it's unfortunate with the developer devices. Unfortunately, we don't support them anymore. And the manufacturers, Geek Phones, do support them. Yeah. So they're still distributing bills. And as far as I know, just recently they did... Uh, release an official 1.3 build okay. so Geek's phone does support builds for that devices Mozilla unfortunately doesn't uh, because of our focus we really have to focus on the consumer devices in saying that though coming very soon uh, this year um, we will have reference devices so these will be um, devices where Mozilla will have control of the builds We'll be able to get, uh, you know, we'll be distributing them amongst developers again and amongst uh, other audiences, and we'll be getting updates out quicker and more reliably, hopefully. Okay. So, uh, so you, you want to be a hacker, and or if you, that will then be easier. Um, 
the, the hardware will be unlikely to change in those reference builds. Is that, is that, is that more how it's going to happen? I, I don't know the hardware specs of the of the reference devices right now. Um, I could make a wild guess and say they might be slightly better specs, but uh, you know, yeah, don't, don't bother. We can, we can <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What's the uh, the network device over there that I see on the table? That I do not know. I'm okay, afraid, that's the secret project we're not allowed to talk about. No, no, I think it's just some mini PC. Uh, it runs Firefox OS. You just hook it up to a monitor, and yeah. You you can also use Firefox OS for just a standard like Raspberry Pi ish device or uh, one of those low low power devices. Yeah, you know I've seen it on thirty seven inch televisions. You know, obviously it's not optimized. You know, it's not supposed to work on on uh, screens that large. Um, but you know, we're moving into tablets. We'll be releasing a developer tablet soon, so we're scaling up to that. Uh, Panasonic announced a couple of weeks ago that. Uh, they're looking to put Firefox OS in their smart televisions. So, um, you know, sure, you'll, you'll be seeing on many screens, I'm sure. Oh, that's, forward. that's good news. Yeah. Um, tell me, has the NSA um, scandal and the, the issues around that, I've seen that Firefox and Mozilla in particular have made some announcements that you're the only browser that can be trusted. Uh, has, how, how has that strategy worked for you? Um... <clears throat> well, you know, it, it, it comes down to what, what our motivations are, you know. As a non-profit, you know, we've only got to answer to our users. So we're not, uh, we're not pressurized into, you know, making any um, decisions based on, on business or other factors. In saying that, we do need to comply with the law. Uh, I've no idea if we've ever got any requests for data. Um, I don't think so. Uh, again, don't quote me on that. Um, we're only now moving more heavily into the services area, so you know we will be dealing a lot more with user data moving forward. Um, so I, you know, we're going to do our utmost to ensure that we put the user first with regards to privacy and security. Um, you know, that's our mission. Basically. And the code is there, so anybody who's got the technical know-how can go and. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, um, we're urging security researchers to, 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 you know, make available tools where you can compare builds of Firefox with reference builds and make sure it's exactly what you're getting. For example, you know, that's just one thing. Um, we're going to continue to fight on policy. We're going to continue to be involved in these discussions and influence. Um, um, yeah, and just make sure we're always fighting for the users. Yeah. I think the Firefox brand itself is the poster child, really, for what you know the best of what uh, open source can do, or free software can do. So, um, do you find that politically, that's that you know, that's been useful to you, or has have you tried to uh, institute political changes in that, or is that outside your mission? Um, yeah, there's you know, there's always constant debate in the community about how far we should go you know on that on the political front um, um, you know are we a technology company or are we a policy organization um, I think we're kind of somewhere in the middle I think you know we're definitely technology driven our, our number one focus is the product uh, you know it is open um, we try and make it as transparent as possible uh, in that respect um, but we really I think we really need to uh, and we have been you know stepping up and, and making statements, uh, various policy statements. wouldn't quite say political, but, uh, you know, where we feel that, um, um, you know, the user experience on the Internet is being threatened, you know, uh, we speak up 
for sure. Okay, one last question is probably putting the foot in a little. Uh, yeah. The funding, Mozilla is a non-profit organization, but quite a lot of your funding comes from companies like Google and through the, through the search and stuff. Mm-hmm. How, um, how if, if that funding suddenly stops in the morning, is there a plan B? Oh, there's always a plan B. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I wouldn't quite say that. Um, you know, m- before we, we had business contracts with, with Google, we were a thriving organization. We, we had a solid browser. We had, um, you know, we've got a solid community around the world uh, that we can rely on. And, and um, I, to be quite honest, I can't comment on the financial side of things, um, but we're definitely looking... Uh, uh, looking at a lot of angles uh, for sustainability, and uh, you know, that's that's a big priority for us. Yeah. So, have you been to? Is this the first time you're a Fostem, or do you go to many events? Yeah, as part of my job, I I go to a lot of events. Uh, this is probably my ninth or tenth time at Fosdem. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fosdem is definitely very special. You know, it's definitely very grassroots, yeah, very geeky. Um, and I think, you know, great camaraderie. Uh, and, yeah, it's just a really special atmosphere. Do you ever get to any of the talks at all, or are you just down here in the booth the whole time? Uh, to be honest, most of the time I'm, I'm caught up in something Mozilla-related. Uh, we have a dev room every year as well. Um, this year's a little bit different. We've only got dev room for one day. So today it's great. Uh, all the Mozillians can wander around, go to different talks, go to different stands, and and you know network and mingle more and i think that's important as well you know not to be not to be isolated and to, and, and to you know mix with your peers and other projects and and, and uh, you know brainstorm things and so on yeah it's also good that the talks are going to be online at least you can go and uh, watch them after the event absolutely yeah yeah so anything else uh, new and upcoming that we should know about anything uh, that our hackers can uh, assist you with that you need help with yeah, absolutely. Um, we always welcome help um, in all areas, not just engineering, but we've got opportunities in, in marketing, in PR, in, in, in events, and so on. Um, um, you know, um, so so um, I would urge everybody to go to mozilla.org slash contribute, and that lists um, a lot of the opportunities. Uh, available in the project, so right right across the board. Um, we have an initiative this year, One Million Mozillians, so we're looking to expand our, our community of contributors. Um, so we're building out a lot more tools for our community to become involved. Uh, we're figuring new pathways for contributions, and, you know, we're really excited. We um, This is the web, you know. You know, we're just we're just working for the web, and, and we'd love to have everybody to get involved. Cool. Thank you very much for the time, and enjoy the rest of the show. You're welcome. Thank you. You too. Hi, everybody. This is Ken. I've just made my way over from the Mozilla booth, and I'm at the Gnome booth. I'm talking to Tobias. Tobias Muller. Yes. Hello. Hi. Shake hands. Yes. Hello. <laughs> so where are you from? So where are you from? I'm from Germany. From the lovely north of Germany. But I understood that everybody in Germany runs KDE. <laughs> well, actually, uh, we used to have a strong genome community in Germany nonetheless. Yeah. But by now it's declined, to, to be fair. But Okay, tell us, uh, what do you do for the GNOME community? Well, I used to do bug management things, like, uh, well, cleaning up in the Bugzilla and 
uh, well, reminding people to, you know, submit information, stuff like that. And then I, uh, I went on to, to uh, take over new duties, and now I'm uh, in the, or on the board of directors of the GNOME Foundation. Oh, very good. How is the uh, GNOME organization structured? Well, it's actually, well, from a, to, to make it very simple, there's a, uh, a foundation, a, a, an US-based entity, and you can become a member and the members can then vote on their board of directors, which is pretty much like any other non-profit organization, I presume, in, in Europe. And that's, that, that would be the very basic structure on the governance level, right? On the technical level, there's, as it is with a software project, there's no real enforced hard structure. I mean, we have a release team who cares about like, the release and, and getting the, the sub-teams in order to well, provide the quality needed. But it's not, well, enforced really by, by, any, by any rules. It's just social pressure, say. So what sort of uh, stuff have you got here at the booth? What's the purpose of, of being here at FOSTEM? Right. So um, we are trying to increase awareness of free software in general, right? And um, FOSDEM might not be the appropriate venue for that, as everybody knows about free software already. But we have many goodies to bring home. So we have uh, loads of T-shirts, we have loads of stickers and badges and, well, other, other stuff uh, that people might want to take home and show off. I see that you have two computers running there. What's, what's the story with them? One is a tablet and one is just a regular device. Right, it's just a regular PC. Rather tiny one, though, so that we can carry it around easily. Yeah. It's uh, for showing off the latest and greatest GNOME 3.10 release running on Fedora 20. Yeah, it's just for people to touch. Just right now, there's someone uh, touching the touchscreen of the tablet because the people like touchy things and they, they like to interact with the like PC and all. So, what underlying operating system is running on the tablet? Then? Well, that's just a stock Fedora 20 without no modifications. Just installed it like that on the tablet. Right. W- okay. Which tablet? Uh, it's an XOPC Slate. Okay. That's uh, yeah, we got that from Intel a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. All right. And um, so, has it been busy around? Oh, yeah, we've been very busy. In fact, I, it was so busy I couldn't even attend a talk. But, uh, it's great. It's uh, interacting with people. It's, it's awesome. So, you have a developer track as well going on, or is that, is that over? Uh, it is over, I think. Uh, the, there was a dev room for the, for the desktop, or cross-desktop dev room. And I think it was only on to uh, yesterday. But, in fact, it's uh, different members of the community take care of the dev room. So we, we are here for the booth and... Uh, different people are, are for, the, for the dev room. So what's coming up and uh, what's the new cool things that's happening in GNOME going forward? Is GNOME or GNOME or GNOME? <laughs> so g- genomes are the things that you have in your blood and on your cells, right? The, your DNA and all. The, the, these make genomes. And we are GNOME. Just like that. Uh, quite simple. <laughs> so um, I've heard that uh, Current versions of GNOME rely on a particular startup, uh, System D. Is that correct? Well, yes and no. First of all, I, I'm not uh, the very correct person to talk about uh, technical things, as I as I'm not that much involved on the on the technical level. We are more involved in the in the gover- governance level. So I'm whatever I say might actually be utterly wrong. So uh, it doesn't matter. That's right. fine. So um, as far as I understood it, uh, we got rid of a lot of. Croft in, in the code and instead uh, rely on uh, Dbus interfaces which happen to be provided by System D. Okay. And there was there's I don't even claim to understand it, but that 
then seems to limit the possibility for running GNOME on other operating systems. It kind of makes it Linux-based because that's the only uh, that's the only system that provides systemd. Well, this is true and false. It has been the case for a long time now that all the features were available on Linux only. It's not nothing really has changed. If you want to run GNOME on a non-Linux system, you're very welcome to do so, but you don't get all the features. And that has been the case for a long time now. It's just been the case that it was uh, if theft ordering or stuff like that. So you wouldn't get the features just as you didn't in the past, and you don't get them now. Right? Uh, nothing has changed, actually. It's just that... We it's now a public thing because of the decision for, to choose what startup system's coming up. Say it again, sorry. It's just become more obvious now to more people because of this, um, this discussion right. that's going on. Right, correct, correct. Okay. Cool. Well, that's it. Um, is there anything else you'd like to mention before we go? No, I would love. I would, I would love to thank all the people for being interested. You know, and FreeSoft in general, yeah. keep being awesome. Thank you very much. When is the next release, Stuart? Uh, in March. So in a couple of months, two months. Cool. Thank you very much. You okay. Very cool. Hi, everybody. This is Ken again at uh, FOSDEM 2014, and I've moseyed over to the CentOS booth. And they've quickly hidden all the red hats under the table. <laughs> and I'm going to talk to Jim and Jim, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. So you've come all the way from the States, have you? Or do you live over this part of the world? Uh, no, I came over from Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. And you're part of the, what? For, I'd say, the two people on the network who don't know what CentOS is, could you just give us a, a, a rundown of what it is? Uh, we try to be a community-oriented, stable enterprise operating environment. And you steal the code from Red Hat to do that, don't you? I wouldn't use the word steal exactly. Um, We have a a rather cozy relationship at present. Um, There was an announcement in January that might have been making the rounds um, that that helps kind of ease that transition. But we we try to be uh, very good and very open source friendly. And Red Hat's done a fantastic job with um, furthering that along. Uh, both with distributing the code through FTP and then welcoming us into the family. So the the way that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, the Red Hat is distributed, if you are a subscriber of their network, then you're, you get access to the source code or you're allowed legally access to the source code, which you take, strip out the Red Hat um, trademarks and, and that sort of thing, and you rebrand that as CentOS, providing community support for up to how long? Exactly. With the exception that Red Hat goes a bit further than that, they provide that source freely to anybody. You don't have to be a subscriber. It is right now on their uh, FTP website, ftp.redhat.com. The agreement right now is that that will shift in the future to become git.senos.org. So we will be transitioning to make that code even more available uh, through the, the CentOS framework to put that out there for everybody to use. Okay, so then other projects that do similar things like uh, Scientific Linux, they will also be able to use that? Yes, we've been uh, actually in discussion with the Scientific Linux folks about how best to work with them so that both teams can, can use this new uh, change to benefit everybody. So why do you, why do you think the um, Red Hat picked CentOS as opposed to Scientific Linux as opposed to uh, Unbreakable Linux? 
I think there's an interesting choice with Unbreakable, and I will keep my opinions to myself. Oh, we want controversy here. <laughs> Let me just uh, throw some stuff out there. Um, well, actually, about the obviously Oracle is taking um, the code, recompiling it, and then providing support to the same services as Red Hat would be right. doing. But there was, at a certain point, a change made, which made it more difficult for uh, Oracle to do that. And at the time, the CentOS project and the Scientific Linux project said that that didn't present a, a massive hurdle. Can you just tell us what happened there and why the change was made? Um, around the six time frame when when that distribution came out, the kernel patching structure was changed from an individual patch to a unified patching framework. So everything that Red Hat had changed within the kernel structure was distributed then as one unified patch instead of broken out into, I think there were somewhere around seven or 800 individual patches in the package. For us, that didn't present a problem because we just need to make sure the code compiles. We're not going to change all that much, so if it works for us, fantastic. For other vendors who might have been cherry-picking individual patches to apply, that may have presented more of a problem. i say a lot of tears were shed <laughs> over that. So what is the new organization? Will certain uh, CentOS team members will now be working, will be paid for? Uh, well, their salaries will be paid by Red Hat. Yes. Uh, Are you one of the lucky ones? I am one of the lucky ones. Um, with that, it essentially provides us more time to work on CentOS instead of trying to fit time to do the distribution in between uh, day job, family life, and everything else going on. Now we can actually focus on the distribution full time. So it, oh. it's not necessarily that that Red Hat is providing us all of these grand resources or anything like that. They're just enabling us to put more time into the distribution. They, they have complete trust in, in us and the team that was running the distribution prior, and they're allowing us more freedom and more opportunity to work on it as we see need, uh, a, a need to do so. Okay, so I, I'm looking at this whole plan. Fedora, I can understand. It's the cutting edge. It's the, it's the reason you know, they're going to do development stuff in there your Red Hat Enterprise, what? why would an organization who's selling, whose core business is selling support then come along and, these guys are doing it for free, let's also pay their salaries. That's surely madness. It seems like that at first, and it really does. But when you look at a lot of the community development that Red Hat is trying to foster around uh, OpenStack and OpenShift and Overt and a lot of these other programs, they're trying to build that community up. They're trying to build that foundation that has been successful for them in the past. Um, so what our distribution enables them to have that, that longer framework to build on and, and to develop community around. Fedora has primarily been targeted at the, the desktop and more rapidly moving development aspect but for a project like Overt, where they're focused on uh, long-term virtualization aimed at enterprise, you need a middle ground between the rapidly moving development structure and somebody that is paying Red Hat for a turnkey solution that they want support for. So we're providing that kind of community-based middle ground, where if somebody wants to use more recent code that they're okay with it breaking 
fantastic. Come use our stuff. Come come be a part of the community. Come help make it all better. So that's that's kind of where it, it benefits us because we're able to reach out to more community aspects that we couldn't necessarily before due to time constraints or family constraints. And Red Hat gets a platform to push more community that might not fit as well in the Fedora structure without impacting other aspects. And of course the day will come when some manager comes down and goes, we want to support contract for this. What, what OS are we running? Oh, CentOS. And here's the number for Red Hat. Thank you very much. So they will be, so you will be able to, will you be able to get, sorry, put more words in your mouth and why not? Uh, will you be able to get support for, from Red Hat for CentOS on a, on a paid basis if you wish? That is not the plan. No. Right, right now, that has not been discussed and that has been turned down. I, I, I don't sit on the, the business side of Red Hat. I have no idea what their future plans are. They have told me they don't plan to do that. For my aspect of it, I'm focused on the community side and the bigger we can make the community, the better. So what other stuff should I see here? Right behind me, I see OpenStack, OpenVert, and the Zen Project. Where is Red Hat in this? Red Hat is directly behind you with the OpenShift booth, the Overt booth, the Foreman group, and probably part of the OpenStack. I believe they have some uh, RDO folks over at OpenStack. It, it's Red Hat. We contribute to just about everything. <laughs> They don't even have a booth here like this. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Anything else I missed in this whole mad journey? I don't think so. I think you've covered it. Uh, other than that, go get CentOS, try it out, and join the community. Come be a part of what we're working on. How did you start? How did you make your way into the community in the first place? I started off in the community as a user, and I kept trying to get uh, Johnny over here and uh, Karen Beer Singh, who's the, the project is he the chair? Yeah, he's the board chair right now. Um, I kept trying to get those two to do some of the work that I needed to have done in the distribution, and instead they talked me into joining and doing it myself. It's funny, some people do that. It's, it's a terrible, <laughs> terrible thing. Um, right, and uh, so FOSTEM, do you go around to a lot of these uh, events? How would you compare FOSTEM? I was not able to before. Now that we have a little more uh, uh, reserve balance of cash. <laughs> now that we have a few more resources, I'm able to do a few more of these. Uh, this is my first time at FOSDEM, and it has been fantastic. It, it's it's my, also my first time, so it's actually massive. I was blown away by the size of this. Yes. Um, I've, I've done uh, LinuxCon, Linux World, things like that, but this uh, is by far... Yeah, right. Those are, you know, trade shows. This is very definitely not a trade show. Everybody that I've spoken with here is a user that understands the deep technical fundamentals, and, and the conversations have been fantastic. I saw. I was. We came on the tram this morning, and it was, it was full of people with you know in black wearing rucksacks, and I'm sure there was a lady sitting there. She was thinking, "This is a flash mob," <laughs> and all of a sudden, all these people got off the tram. She's just wondering, and then she looked over at myself and uh, this my my friend, who were both quite old. What these guys I can understand, but what are these two old farts doing here? <laughs> anyway, thanks very much for the interview, and uh, good luck and congratulations with your new job. Thank you very much. No problem. Okay, guys, as Ken, I've been sent over here by the CentOS guys, and I'm now talking to a Red Hat employee, uh, Daniel. How are you doing, Daniel? 
I'm doing very well, thank you. So you work for Red Hat, do you? I don't even see a Red Hat, the word Red Hat up here in any of the banners. How is that possible? Uh, we're basically very focused on contributing to open source, and it doesn't really... Uh, so Red Hat basically sells this product. Uh, it sells the support. It sells uh, like features requests for new users. And here we're basically uh, trying to give back to the open source community so they can talk to us. Uh, in fact, I myself was working on some of these projects um, when I was working at my previous at my previous job. I made like a lot of contributions to this to this project, and now I got uh, hired by, by by Red Hat. So it's uh, we're very focused on, on open source and not really uh, we, we don't really come here to sell as much as to, as we do to get in touch with the community. I think. Okay, that's. That makes perfect sense. So there are three different... I'm, I must say I, I've heard about OakenStack. I've listened to some of the podcasts, but it's kind of gone over my head a little bit. So can you bring us through what the hell you're, what you're doing here? Okay. So we brought uh, three main projects, which are OpenShift, uh, Foreman, and Overt. So OpenShift, Foreman, and Overt. Now, in Ireland, shift means something completely different to what, what it probably means here. So which one do you want to talk about first? Uh, okay, let's go for Foreman. Okay, so Foreman is basically um, a way of having like an inventory of your, of your data center or your cluster of servers. Uh, you get to have like groups of hosts that you can basically say what you want them to do. So you, you can say, I want this group of hosts to be a Hadoop processor cluster. And then it connects to Puppet or it connects to Chef. And these um, configuration management systems uh, basically provision the nodes. Uh, you can also connect it to a lot of uh, virtualization systems. So you can connect it to OpenStack, Google Compute Engine, whatever you want and spin up some VMs and have them provision provision them with with any kind of uh, with any kind of uh, software that you want. So if you, it, it's nice like when you have a data center and you want to be uh, maybe um, having like some com- commodity hardware and you want to uh, maybe change the things that this commu- commodity hardware does. Uh, like a lot of times. Uh, you just move them to a different host group. You, these are the processors that we have created. Uh, like I just said, we can just move them to a MySQL cluster host group, and in a matter of uh, 20, 30 minutes, you have a MySQL cluster working uh, if you have set it if you have set it up correctly. Okay, so just to get it clear in my head, for example. You're operating a data center, you have so many machines, you don't use all the machines for the same thing at all the time. So a customer's doing a, a campaign for something else, so we need new web servers, we need new... So we just throw hardware at that, and this facilitates that. But how is that different from doing it with something like CF Engine or uh, something like doing it by hand? Right. Yeah, so we basically build upon C- uh, configuration management tools. We don't specifically use CF Engine, but we use Puppet and Chef, which are alternatives to it. Yep. Uh, we're planning on supporting other uh, configura- configuration management tools. Uh, basically, what Foreman does in in a nutshell is to tell these configuration management servers, uh, "Hey, you should provision the systems with this software. They should look like like Foreman says." 
and yeah, that's basically what. So what does that look like? I'm, I'm, okay. Is there a web server front? Is it a front end? It, it is a web server. Okay, cool. We're walking over. We're walking. We're walking. Actually, it should be the free software song. And here's Foreman. I'm looking at a laptop, which is not going to be a whole lot of good in an audio podcast. But um, so it's a web page. Presumably, this is uh, available on a demo website somewhere. Uh, yeah. So uh, it's uh, RailsApp, uh, which basically connects to the, all of the configuration management systems that I said before. Um, here, you have like a dashboard with an overview of your of your system. In our system, everything is okay, but you get like error reports. Uh, hosts that might not be uh, when, when it says here that they are out of, out of sync. That means that they don't look they don't look like Foreman says that they should look. Uh, and when you go to a particular host like this, these are uh, like our mini data center in this laptop. Uh, when you go to one particular host, you can see uh, some statistics about the host. Like what kind of environment this host is? Is this in production? Is this in development? Whatever it is, and if you have some physical machines, you can you can uh, check like the BMC uh, properties of them. So you can do like remote power control. Uh, if you have some VMs, uh, then you can uh, get like some information about them. Get get a console. Uh, power them off. Them. Yeah. And this is actually very useful for uh, maybe if you want to offer a cloud to your to your um, to your employees, uh, you can just give them access to the foreman. They can go here, click a new host, and uh, you basically choose what kind of machine do you want. So here we only have one kind of machine. Uh, you choose like where do you want to deploy this machine? We now and the options bare metal, local host, or uh, Libvirt and over Libvirt. Uh, it can be OpenStack. We don't have only configured these two here. Uh, let's say uh, Libvirt, and you say okay. So I want a large instance. I want to deploy it in Libvirt. I want it to be production. I want it to call it um, HBR. test. Uh, and I want it to. Inst- I want to install uh, NTP. So you, this is basically selecting the kind of this extra software that you want in, in that machine. Uh, you can also select which uh, network do you want to deploy it on, which operating system, everything, and the particular parameters of the virtual machine, like memory. Uh, if you want, like extra, yeah, extra NICs and the like. You have like a multi-site data center. You can also. Um, deploy it in in uh, remote data data center. So it it's kind of useful when you want to have like a central tool for several data centers because you this works by having a proxy at each of the data centers, yeah. and this proxy uh, can connect to the central foreman and uh, basically let foreman know what's the, the status what the status of the machine of the machine is. So now I click and submit. Oh, it's. I yeah, it's okay. We don't need to, to go through a full thing. Okay. Um, just one question then. How would you, how do you link this to your puppet instance in the first place, or your chef engine? Okay, so your puppet master will have uh, a little script that whenever it gets a request from a puppet client, the puppet master will uh, will contact Foreman and say, "Hey, I got this client. How does test that?" client.com uh, should look like 
and Foreman says, hey, this should look like a MySQL server. Then Puppet does it, uh, it sends the sends the provision and information to, to the client, and then the client tells Foreman, hey, I got this this uh, information from Puppet. Uh, you take a report, and here's what I've done. So you can so after after all the configuration has happened, you can go to Foreman and check the the history of of what happened to that particular host. Okay, so essentially it's taking the pain out of making tea, uh, out of bringing up all these hosts. Yeah. So that's Foreman. So what about what's what's the other stuff? Okay. The overt because the overt was an option under here, wasn't it? Correct. Yeah. So it's a virtualization uh, tool. It. It can be uh, compared to Livered, uh, OpenStack, uh, KVM. It's just a w way of uh, creating virtual machines on on your on your servers. Yeah. Um, but how is this different? From, why have you then got a KVM hypervisor <laughs> sticker here? On okay. So stack? here's the thing. Uh, Foreman focuses on providing on providing um, provisioning the instructions. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't do the actual. The actual virtualization it doesn't do the actual provisioning. Yep. It doesn't do the actual monitoring. It just builds upon those tools. Yep. Gotcha. This is one of these virtualization tools, yep. and this is what is actually uh, going into the server and creating the actual virtual machine inside it. So, but this isn't the technology that does the, the virtual machine proper. Yes. <laughs> yeah. On the on the physical bare metal. So yeah. Physical bare metal. You're looking at KVM, is it? Correct. Something like that. Mm -hmm. Are there other options other than KVM, like Zen? Uh, maybe, you know. No. I think we just use KVM, yeah. We're actually managing. Well, Sorry, you you are? I'm Don from Reda, Don Feduk. Uh, we're doing data center virtualizations, which means uh, we are covering the whole data center lifecycle. So for starting uh, virtual machines, we work with QM on KVM. KVM is in the kernel, QM is the user space, okay? And we are basically managing everything you need in a data center, which includes storage, we're connecting to the physical storage resources, network, uh, all the relevant network paths that you need. And we will do everything for you, starting with installing the first host. The only thing you need to do is pixie boot your server, um, have a base operating system like CentOS or Fedora or even RHEL. We will do everything. We will make hypervisor in uh, from out of your server. Sorry, from. And then we will start managing it. So every time uh, the user would like to start a VM, we will do it for him. Uh, we will schedule a VM based on the resources. We are doing load balancing across the data center. We have different policies. For example, if you want during the weekend to shut down the host, so you switch to power saving policy, and we will start monitoring the traffic and the activity and the CPU usage. And once we see everything is done, we'll start migrating, live migrating your VMs uh, into several few hosts, and everything else will simply shut down. So this is kind of like uh, the VMware or VMware management. Yeah. The open source version of vSphere. I must say, it, lo looking at the screen, um, we'll put a link. Do you have a demo site on the web somewhere that people can go to? Well, they can uh, download. We have Overt Live, and they can simply boot a USB stick with Overt Live on it, and they will have a full demo, full running demo. So you get to a, a website? Yeah. 
and a, let me see, got a data centre underneath that is a tree view with uh, Taos, which is home, storage, network, templates, clusters, so it's like your typical uh, management of VM. So basically, the hierarchy is that way. You start with creating your data centre, so this one has uh, NFS support, but uh, we can actually have you, give you various other storage supports like iSkies, Fiber Channel, yeah. whatever, Gluster. We have very tight Gluster support, by the way. Once you have that, you will create a cluster of hosts, which is basically a migration domain. This is what ensures that your live migration will succeed and you will not try to migrate a VM running on a high CPU level to a lower one, which may kill the guest. So that's basically a cluster and it has several properties. Um, so one of the interesting things here is that we have a cluster policy and that's where you actually set whether you want uh, load balancing to work for even distribution or power saving and in our latest versions you can even create your own policies Something that was going to be my next question Yeah. so we have it, we have it in the system level just uh, something uh, this is the system configuration level so you can actually create here new policies. It's based on a concept which are a bit similar to Nova Scheduler in OpenStack. So we have filters uh, which filters out host that that does not meet the bare minimum. For example, if you have insufficient memory, we will filter out that host during the scheduling process. So that's the first thing you would like. So I see enable filters here. So you got pin to host, CPU level, memory, CPU. And now he's just dragging and dropping them over, and you can uh, you can set up your like dragging over the network. So it's so I guess these are all going to be uh, filters that are going to. Yeah. These will filter out based on that internal logic the host from the cluster, and you will end up with a limited amount of hosts, which are relevant to the scheduling process. Yeah. The next part is a weight. Basically, the weight is a kind of optimization. It allows us from the valid host to choose the best one. Yeah. Okay. So you actually have an explanation when hovering above any one of the models. So, for example, uh, it's even distribution, and the pop-up says gives hosts with lower CPU usage higher weight, meaning that the hosts with higher CPU usage are more likely to be selected. Well, that seems obvious enough to me. And then the last part, you actually choose the load balancing logic. Okay, So let's take even distribution, and let's give that a name demo instead of test okay now we have a demo and we can go back to the cluster and assign it the new demo policy we just created fantastic okay so now taking a higher level view how does this relate to foreman then okay so foreman is a great project uh we actually consider them as siblings because we integrate very well together uh we have a restful api with Python bindings, and they are actually integrating with Overt using our REST API. So they can actually provide virtual machines. I'm not sure if they are managing the rest of the resources, such as uh, network and storage, but they make sure that at least for the VMs you want, with or without high, avail- high availability, for example, you will get exactly what you need. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit confused. Yeah, okay, so we basically take over. Uh, Forma has this concept of a compute resource, and we can uh, use many of these uh, virtualization tool stacks like to uh, create our vir- virtual machines in Foreman. Yep. So you can have 
over it, you can have OpenStack, you can have Levert, uh, VMware, Google Compute Engine. You can have all of them if you want and have your user just go to a standardized uh, new host uh, interface where they just say, hey, I want a machine of this kind. I want, I want this machine to be like a medium uh, power CPU. I want this machine to have that RAM. And it doesn't really care about what the backend is. It just creates the machine. Also, it gives uh, some provisioning to, to the to the virtualization tool that is behind. So when you go to over it and you, and you try to create one machine, you don't know what that machine is going to be uh, doing. You, you cannot uh, well provision it like with CF Engine or Puppet or any of these tools. Uh, what Foreman does is that it, it sends information when you create the machine to the uh, server of this configuration management tool. And and when you create the machine, it gets provisioned with whatever you want. So, correct me if I'm wrong here, and I probably am. Overt is more um, detailed, more system administrator, how you how you want to provide your VMs, and then Foreman would be more higher level. I just want a MySQL database, and I want it on this machine. Correct. Uh, if you, well, you're using terms like small, medium, and large. Yeah, maybe if the listeners have um, played with OpenStack Horizon, it, it kind of gives a like a leg up on, on that. Uh, so OpenStack Horizon is basically a way of creating virtual machines, creating volumes, create, uh, creating network topologies on, on OpenStack. Uh, when you have Foreman, you can use that. You can use uh, whichever virtualization backing you have. Yeah. And on top of that, uh, you can also uh, manage your set of already existing virtual machines and give them like some use. You can like you group them in host groups and say, okay, this, group's, this group is going to be a MySQL server cluster, this group is going to be a Hadoop processor cluster, this one is going to be a, a Rails server cluster. Okay. So from, from your point of view, you're in the data center, you're racking and stacking, yeah. providing the virtual machines. To you, to you it, it wouldn't really matter whether it's a MySQL server or a web server. Would that be correct? That would be more a foreman task to provision that via Puppet or well, something. In Over, you have the, the option of creating a machine with a pre-provisioned volume. Yeah. So when you create the machine, it can have uh, already like an image that... We have templates in Over. Yeah. Yes. Very much like Visfield. So in that way, once you create a template, let's say that you're um, a university and you have students and every one of them should get his own Linux VM and his own Microsoft uh, Windows VM. Okay, so we create one template and we create all of the VMs out of that template. Okay, I'm looking for the line, guys. Where is the line between your two projects? So the, let's say that over is managing the backend of actually creating the machine, uh, and Foreman is doing all the life cycle of the, is worrying about the whole life cycle of the machine. Okay? Gotcha. And it's possible, then I guess underneath it's possible for all this migration and power saving to be done without bothering with Foreman. Yeah. Foreman is handling the configuration parts and the provisioning. Overt is basically data center virtualization, which means everything we said, VM lifecycle, including high availability and live migration. You know, everybody listening to this is going, can get it already, come on, move on. Uh, so what's the other project here, the OpenStack then? Uh, OpenStack is a, an open source solution that was born uh, out of the need of having some Alternative to AWS, I guess. Yeah. Uh, which basically AWSs. 
Uh, oh, Amazon Web Services. Oh, yes. Uh, so ah, it, it, yes. it has like a few Lego building blocks like you can see here on, on the poster. Right, and we've uh, got uh, where do I yeah. start at the bottom or work my way up? It uh, doesn't really matter. I mean, it, it's... Well, we've got OpenStack Compute with provisions large <laughs> and manages large networks of virtual machines. Isn't that truly what this is? Correct. Yeah. Okay, cool. Underneath that, bot. They, they are doing it in a different way. Uh, OpenStack is more about a public cloud, yeah. just as we just mentioned, AWS. Yeah. And Ovid is more a private cloud, like data center virtualization. Yeah, gotcha. So Ovid can actually integrate with OpenStack, and we can consume some of their services. But it's like a different type of solution. If, you have, if you're a bank, so you would probably go for a private cloud. Um, but if you would like to provide uh, public services yeah. and you need to scale up for a big amount of consumers and virtual machines, so that would be OpenStack. They actually don't really care about uh, things that Ovid provides, like high availability and load balancing. Yeah. If your VM crashes, <coughs> tough, just yeah, start it. Actually, in the OpenStack concept, the application should be highly available and not the virtual machine. So underneath that, we have OpenStack storage, object and block storage for use with servers and applications. Correct. You can basically tie that to your uh, virtual machines, or you can just have them stand alone and connect them at some point later on. Uh, it can be like uh, all of these building blocks have more or less like an equivalent in, the, in AWS. So if people are more used to S3, yeah. let's say that it's the alternative to S3. And in fact, all of the OpenStack cloud has like um, similar or nearly identical API to AWS yeah, yeah. so that uh, it can integrate with, well with already existing um, AWS plugins and AWS. Um, okay. And the last one there is the OpenStack network, pluggable, scalable, API-driven IP management. This I actually... This I understand. I would see this has been slightly different to what you two guys. Yeah. You're very, very compatible projects from what, Correct. from what I would see. And this is more for you just want to build your own, you want to compete with Amazon basically. Yeah, I, yeah. I can give you a, an, like, a deployment that I, was man that I was managing with some other people in, in CERN in Geneva in the large Hadron Collider uh, project. Uh, they have an OpenStack deployment at their data center. Well, what they basically do is they want to offer. Uh, public cloud for all physics research researchers in in the world uh, out of the resources in the in the certain data center and what they basically do is they, they have like a very very similar to uh, easy to uh, to the easy to interface for for OpenStack which is offered by OpenStack it's called OpenStack Horizon and physicists can go there and say okay I want my machine to have these parameters, let's create one. On top of that, since that's not enough, because you're leaving the burden of of configuring the machine to the physicist, we put Foreman so that physicists can say, hey, I want this machine to have these parameters, and I want this machine to do this thing. And I want these cluster of machines to do that. With OpenStack, you can just build a machine. Yeah, gotcha. And that's... Yeah. Different, two different philosophies, but a lot of work. We're talking more banky type stuff, more um, well, enterprise level. Yeah, enterprise level, and this is more like whack it against the wall and mm -hmm. let's do this thing. That's excellent. Thank you very much, guys, for taking the time. What do you think of Foster? 
Uh, it's going very well. Uh, I'm actually it's the first, my first time here, and I'm pretty surprised. Uh, it's like all the talks that I've been att- that I've attended to, uh, mostly in my SQL uh, track. They're they're being very very good, and it, it's great. Like it makes Brussels uh, really kind of like tech center for a few days. Uh, like the whole city kind of feels like very very uh, techy. <laughs> yes, it does actually. So I really like first. It's my second time in Fosdam, and it's brilliant. It's getting better every year. It's like good wine. Have you seen the beer fridge up there? It's like a, a beer a beer collector's dream. Yeah. There isn't a can of Heineken to be seen. So I was reading Twitter actually yesterday. Someone said that Fosdam is a denial of service attack on Brussels. And it's kind <laughs> very of good. funny. Yeah, but I love Fosdam. It's amazing. It's brilliant. Listen, guys, thank you very much. Um, and if ever you want to do your own show on Hacker Public Radio, the contact details are there, and you can upload on any topic that's of interest to hackers. Sure. All right. We'll okay, do. Thank you very thank much. much. Okay, have a good one. We're here at the Fedora project and I'm talking to Okay, hi guys. I'm Yaroslav Zing. I'm Fedora program manager. And I'm Yuri Eichmann and I'm uh, the chair of Fedora Ambassador Steering Committee and I work for Red Hat as a community manager. Okay, so what is Fedora? Uh, Fedora is... First, uh, Fedora is a general-purpose Linux distribution, and Fedora Project is uh, an open-source project that is backed by Red Hat, and the goal is to uh, make the Fedora, that's uh, the Linux distribution. So Fedora development, uh, stuff is developed in Fedora and then passed on to the other Red Hat projects. Would that be fair to say? So things are developed in Fedora and then they go into Red Hat Enterprise and into CentOS. So yes. it comes into Fedora first. Yeah, yeah. Fedora, Fedora works as, you know, upstream, upstream for Red Hat Enterprise Linux. But uh, we are still community. Red Hat helps us. Community helps Red Hat. So it's like some symbiosis between these two projects, this company and community. And it's really great. And then, you know, CentOS is, you know, rebuild of RHEL, Enterprise Linux. So yep. it's a, like a whole ecosystem of, you know, distributions. And it's pretty cool, you know, to work with Red Hat and Mifin Red Hat. And there are many Red Hatters who work you know, in Fedora, not because they are, you know, Red Hatters, yep. but they like the project and they like to share and are passionate about Fedora. So it's hard to say, like, who's Red Hatter and who's working for Red Hat because they have to. Yep, yep. And... Uh, in the end, you end you know, working on Fedora, not that eight hours you are paid for, yeah. but when you spend 14 hours and you are leaving office at 3 a.m., yes. and you have to release uh, Fedora because not you have to, because Red has said, but you want to release it. So you're getting paid for your hobby, basically. You're getting paid to do what you yeah, like. We are paid for now. When, we, when we got hired by Red Hat, it was pretty much that our hobby became our work or job. You see, Mum... I, I am somebody is going to pay me to do what you told me I would never be able to get money to do um, but about the Fedora project one thing that's always been a bit of a puzzle to me is if Fedora or if Fedora is the you know the direction that Red Hat Enterprise Linux is going to be and it's a community project that means that who knows what's going to be in Red Hat Enterprise Linux surely there must be a wish from the marketing department or the roadmap department that we want to put widget X into the next release of 
uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. So therefore, you must put widget, Project Widget into Fedora. Well, it's it's kind of too, uh, but I think it's like it's a good symbiosis and uh, the goals uh, of the community, the wishes of the community, and what Red Hat wants pretty much uh, comes together. After all, uh, you. And Fedora, pretty much at the beginning, like at the beginning, it's just a platform. And then you can build different, we, we would call it now products. So far it has been called spins. And that's, that's, there, is, there is room for uh, pretty much for everyone to build what he wants. So even for Red Hat, even for the community. So if Red Hat really wants something, then he pretty much pays people to do it in Fedora. But it doesn't mean that nothing else cannot be done within within the distribution. So, for example, if, if I was Microsoft and I wanted something into Red Hat Enterprise Linux, I could pay you guys to develop that or have my own developers work on that product and get it into... Well, if you, if you get something... Microsoft is probably yeah. a bad name. <laughs> but if you, if you get something to Fedora, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to end up in RHEL. It's always... Uh, uh, RHEL, the Red Hat Enterprise Linux, is always just a subset of, of Fedora. Fedora contains much, much more software than uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux itself. Uh, but it could be... If, if it's already in Fedora, it could be picked by Red Hat for the next generation of Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Okay, I've been, as I said earlier, I've been running Fedora for uh, three years on a bet, actually, from one of the guys here. I used to run Debian quite a lot, and um, my earlier experiences with Red Hat-based distros has been, you know, uh, RPM hell, where you take a random RPM. And there's none of that anymore uh, since then, so the only controversial feature that I would have noticed has been the recent introduction of the partitioning manager. How did that come about, and uh, why have you why have you decided to radically change how partitioning managers work? You mean I'm an, an Anaconda, an installer? Yeah. The new one where you have up here and you need to click here, and other things are going on, and a lot of the feedback from people on Hacker Public Radio has been it's it's not been 100% clear. Okay, it's a beta product, but it seemed to me that it was just had to go into Fedora. It was pushed out the door. Well, one thing is we had to change the installer because the old one wasn't crappy, but you know the code base was old and it was hard to maintain it, and uh, it took a lot of resources to work on an installer. Also, the UI at that time wasn't that very friendly. If you if you remember that you know that three years ago, four years ago, if you yeah. hit back. The installer usually crashed, so that was pretty, pretty bad. Not good. Very experienced at the time. So, and really, I have to say, I like that idea with Hub. Like, uh, for example, if you live in the US, so you are not going to change the keyboard, you probably your time zone is picked up automatically. Yeah. You just click two times to select your disk, yeah. hard drive, and you set, continue install it. So, it's pretty, pretty neat idea. I like it. Uh, partitioning, because, you know, it comes from designers. Uh, I think the idea behind is not bad. We still have some, you know, space in that impl- implementation, how to make it better. And, uh, for example, last year, actually this time, in the developer conference, we had, uh, like, the usability session with users. So we asked a few users, could guys come here? We will, you know, record you. We will take a look what you are doing. 
and we got a lot of you know very nice feedback so for example one thing was okay with the new installer uh, partition magic and somehow you have to you know put your this together how you want but people were clicking and then realized okay so i would like to run the installation but i don't know what's going to happen there Yep. So from that time, there's a nice overview of you know all actions that has to happen, and you know okay, so this has happened to my disk. This uh, partition is removed. This is edited. This is formatted. So we are still working on you know making that experience better and you know with real users. Yep. So we have some kind of feedback, and uh, you know the Federal 18 was delayed pretty much because of the new installer, and it wasn't. That ready at that time, but all that you know, free releases, guys are awesome in Arconda Installer and they are trying to make the experience better. And uh, this time, Federal 18 was a nightmare for me as you know, release manager. Yeah. <laughs> Federal 19 was perfect, we released almost on time, so a lot of bugs were sorted out. In Federal 20, we had a few issues with the new features, but it's getting overall better. I'm not saying it's we are that you know, place we like to see. But we are getting better, and I think people are getting familiar with that new partitioning. It's always when you change something from scratch, people are screaming, "Okay, you change something!" You and can't especially do that. partitioning where all the photos of my kids are on the drive. <laughs> you don't want to be messing with that. Yeah. I think if I can add something, I think the the designers and developers of Anaconda, the, the Fedora installer, are fighting a pretty difficult task. Because uh, the partitioning in Anaconda has to support like a lot of, a lot of features, other distributions just don't support uh, like the, the enter- enterprise features in partitioning, LVM and so on. And I think at the beginning uh, the designers came with pretty neat design, but you know with adding new features and supporting uh, more and more use cases, it kind of became uh, a bit bloated and uh, a bit confusing uh, but that's that's something we have to deal with that's, uh, because Fedora is like the upstream for Red Dead Empire's Linux uh, the installer just has to support most of these features the enterprise features so but again um, people should go back and revisit this a lot of improvements have been done and probably going on a lot of improvements will come yeah, always trying to improve you know, the experience. One, one thing I do like about Fedora is, is that you get the option to encrypt your hard disk out of the box, which is something that I think other distros um, could very well do well with putting in now in revelations of what's been happening uh, recently. So that that's a big plus for me as far as... It's actually one of the, one of the features, I think, the required features for enterprise that uh, other... other what, not, only, not only for enterprise, but it's for... For enterprise, it's pretty much hard requirement. That's why it's 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 there, and it's that's actually one of the benefits of this approach that we support also features for. I anybody who runs a laptop should. By, there's no there's no question. You should encrypt your hard disk. End of story. So uh, that, I've been preaching that for a while. Uh, one thing that I also liked recently has been the fed up tool, which is a very bad name for an upgrade tool, I must say. <laughs> Try and fed up Fedora uh, on Google will give you some very interesting hits. So how, is, how has that been improving? How have, you, how have you tackled that? That that probably was a criticism a lot of people are used in the Debian world of app get, app 
upgrade 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 dist upgrade has it been the challenge well in the beginning uh, fed up was challenge it is one reason why we delayed f18 yep. we're 18 because it wasn't ready and also there's there was a lot of work going during that free releases yep. so the first time we were not completely happy about the experience for user but now i tried it several times and we have you know pretty good feedback from people that it works now so it's cool uh, actually you have that option to upgrade from command line yep. without you know needing to reboot using a fed up but it's not supported actually you can you can, you can do it but we don't support it because we can't support any single combination that can happen yeah uh, So your recommendation still is to do a new fresh thing. Fedup is actually officially tested uh, the, the tested, uh, tested way to upgrade to the new release. But it, but as I said at the beginning, there is no one way in Fedora. So if uh, one one guy didn't like Fedup, so he just created Fedora upgrade, which is pretty much uh, uh, upgrade. During when, when the system is fully running, which uh, fed up, uh, fed up runs in uh, like a minimal environment when uh, like uh, as uh, least things as possible can, can go wrong. Uh, some people like you know uh, to have the fully running system. They're usually the ones that know what to do when something goes wrong, and they've got the option in Fedora. Okay. I've I've been uh, I have had quite good experience with FedUp. Uh, I've been upgrading my work computer since Fedora 14, and I I've been pretty lucky with that. I haven't had a problems. <laughs> yeah. Touching wood right here. Um, I wanted to do something else. So how has your been? Uh, oh yeah, about Fedora. What I know that. On your website, you're the the, the three friends. Uh, was it friends? Uh, Freedom first features. features. It would have been bad if you here on the Fedora booth and didn't know those three guys. Um, so you're in. A lot of people say that Fedora, or at least in the podcasting world, when they're reviewing distributions, the criticism mostly for Fedora is that you pretend to be a operating system for everybody yet you're obviously somebody for that you need to be highly technical in order to run it is that correct or not well we are aiming to be for everyone but uh, yeah it's thing like honestly say uh, yeah well it's, it's difficult to be extremely user friendly if you have to follow all the uh, all the laws and so on like that, that's the that's the main problem uh, for Fedora that we cannot include patented software and there is there is no way around it it's not a uh, technical problem it's not a philosophical problem it's it's the law yeah it's a, it's a legal problem so we are trying to be as user friendly as possible within uh, the limits uh, we know it's it's not it could be It's not as good as it could be. And then uh, we go to the next question. People, I guess, automatically install something like uh, RPM Fusion. How does the RPM Fusion team uh, fit in with Fedora? Is, is there any level of support there? Is there? Are, 
do you know the, who these guys are or are they just random people on the internet? These guys are, you know, it depends. There are some Fedora guys who like to see some example, but legal problems, uh, software with legal problems, so they just do it in RPM Fusion because it's the easiest way. Yep. Usually usually the communities of these two repositories, like the main Fedora one and uh, RPM Fusion one, are somehow overlapping and most people are working on both and you know, need something to do that you can't do in Fedora. Uh, there was Recently there was some discussion about you know, allowing RPM Fusion and other stuff like not allowing it in Fedora repositories, but make for users easier to reach software in these repositories. Uh, there was some agreement, so uh, Fesco now supports you know third-party repositories yeah. with free and open-source software. Unfortunately, RPM Fusion is not one of you know the praised one, and uh, because the rule is that you know third-party open-source repository should not contain diverse kind of software. It's reason because we can't audit everything what's in RPM Fusion and again yep. again there could be legal problems. Yep. But you know if users want to use it, we are not saying you can't do that, you can do that. So also there are some disputes about you know allowing third party proprietary software. It happened two weeks ago, there was a very heated discussion about that. It was raised to board, so as I'm a member of board, federal board, so we had you know pretty much you know heated discussion about that and uh, actually we were trying to think about if it still you know fits our values you know to promote uh, free software if you if you allow you know searching for chrome or adobe reader in the gnome installator software software installator i don't know the name exact name i'm the gnome user so that's hard question and we are now trying to solve it. It's one part of Fedora.next initiative. So I don't know if you heard about it. But Tell us about it. Okay, so with Fedora, we already, already you know, there for 10 years. But, you know, always, you, can, you have to always, you know, look to the future. You can't, you know, stay in past. So we are trying to overmake, like, make a new way how to produce Fedora. It's so-called now the Free Products Initiative. But we are going to have workstation product, like the standalone product, cloud product, and server product. There is also discussion how to promote other, you know, sub-projects into you know, the real product. And the idea is, you know, let these you know, products work on their products, like an individual way, like to set up their own goals. So, for example, for workstation guys, we are creating now the PRDs, the product requirements document. And if you take a look there, they are trying to make you know, this user experience as easy as possible. So, yeah, there are problems with that values. Sometimes it's, you know, on the very edge, you know, what, what we can allow. But the idea is, you know, to let these working groups to define the product, to go, you know, with their goals higher than, you know, the overall project before was. So... There was a talk about the Fedora the text yeah. by Steve Gallagher yesterday, and uh, we are exactly the time we are trying to define if, what we need to do for Fedora the next. And Fedora 21 is going to be probably very new distribution, better than you. I hope better than we had before. Why? Why? Because of these. Because because of these products. For example, before Fedora was everything yeah. for everyone. No, it's not easy, you know, to do 
you know, software that works for guys in cloud environments. They need something minimal and something that could be used in cloud environments. Server guys, they probably on server you don't want to update every every single year. So, so server needs different thing. Workstation needs again different things. They have to be you know as easy as consumable for users as possible. And uh, there were some you know like disputes between you know these groups. So, for example, the idea is in the future. I'm not saying it's going to happen this year or next year. There is a possibility that you know, for example server product would have a different release cycle different you know cadence of releases different life support and so on uh, for example cloud would be you know the rapidly developing one that you know every three months there would be new new cloud product workstation would be somewhere in between so there would be more governments of these working groups to do what they want for Fedora 21 it's not going to happen right now it is release cycles because Fesco said we don't have manpower, we don't have tooling to allow that. But one day we would like to see, you know, more, you know, products that are aiming their users base, not just, you know, pushing something that's completely general for everyone and say, okay, you have to be happy with that because we release that. So. Okay, I suppose the analogy would be a Debian minimal CD on a server and then you, you build from that. You're, that's going to be a lot of dividing your what a community project is that's going to require different people to take ownership of a lot more you're going to need a lot more help to do that yeah definitely. are you ever going to be able to get sleep <laughs> now you're going to be releasing three different products instead of the one fedora project or am i missing something here that's that's one thing i'm looking forward and trying to sort it out right are you now. mad, and, mad? And, and, and the wall community is trying to do that but one way how to make it possible is to work on you know tooling and automation yeah for example for until now the Fedora QA was mostly manual you know testing yep. so we are now moving to automation their release engineering tools were run by one guy he would have probably got crazy yeah, <laughs> and yeah. he would have to release free products in different time it would be release every single week and it would be crazy but He's working again on better tooling, you know, to allow, you know, fast spinning of composes. And so I think the main goal is, you know, to work now on the tooling. And yeah. if we have tools that, you know, would allow us to be more flexible and more agile, then we could, you know, move to the next step of Fedora.next, you know, to have different products with different goals, different release cycles. Well, what if you end up getting into a... You download server and you need something from workstation and there's something else in cloud. Would you still be able to it, do it a would young be, update? It would, be, it would be still possible. Okay. Oh, it's going to be Fedora-based. Actually, there is a Fedora-based working group. It's so it's essentially a supported spin, I guess. Not. It's in, in some ways, you can say products are spins, but with much more rights and much more power to do what they want. Yeah. But of course, there would be always that you know Fedora repository that would contain everything. And you could install it on Fedora server from, I don't know, desktop from Workstation. Yeah. But you would not get that experience. Workstation product would like to see you when you install it, like the recommended way how to install it. But it would be definitely possible, and we are trying to make sure it's going to be possible. Will that then roll down into uh, main supported Red Hat products? Or can, could I then buy support for these products? Oh, I'm... 
Just a technical guy talks to the marketing department. Okay, thank you very much. Is there anything else that uh, I think we've talk, talked about what's coming up in Fedora? Is there anything else that I've missed that I don't, that you need to cover? How, pe- how can people contribute? How can uh, how can we help? Well, we've got all, all sorts of roles. It could be not only the technical ones, like the t- typical technical role in a distribution is uh, packaging. We can you can package software and we can maintain it. Uh, you can you can work on Fedora infrastructure because uh, all all those co- uh, contributors need some infrastructure, some tooling to do the job. Uh, if it's either a build system or uh, different tags, gits, and so on, the tooling you need for development and man, uh, maintenance. Mini designers, you know, and to help with the new installer. So. And it's what I was trying to get to is that actually, if someone wants to contribute to a Linux distribution, is usually a technical person. Uh, so I would say Fedora, and it's not only Fedora, is uh, more uh, in like of non-technical persons for non-technical positions such as it could be uh, dis- uh, design, it could be marketing, uh, marketing it could be even uh, uh, finances and budgeting because it's also it's also very important. Federal uh, is a large pro- project with hundreds of contributors and we've, we've got some finances and so, someone needs to track the expenses uh, to do the budget, to do the financial planning, and so on. And usually, if someone really wants to contribute to Fedora, it's usually, it's mostly technical guys going for development, going for packaging and stuff like that. So it's not it's not really only about this. We uh, we are looking for people for. Hopefully, there's some accountant out here listening to this. Going, yes, finally, I can contribute to Fedora. Yeah. So, guys, right? Um, how has your first time been? Well, uh, was, there, I, I was there a Fedora to, track yesterday, or? Yeah, there was. But I have to admit, I, I haven't attended a single talk since. I've I've been all. Uh, yeah, I've, been around, I've been I, I've been around the table for the whole time, uh, and I, well, I actually enjoy it because I we meet a lot of uh, Fedora users and even contributors, and it's always nice to talk to people. That, and it's it's awesome, you know, because. A few years ago, when we asked what distribution do you use, it was like Ubuntu or other distributions. And this time everyone comes, oh, I'm using Fedora, it's cool. Thank you for that work. So it's really like I have my energy was boosted again, you know, after hearing all people who are using Fedora and said, wow, it's cool. We have a very nice user base, especially from people who are here at FOSDEM. And, you know, these are people, cool people. And it's great to have them on board. And I hope they will contribute one day. And you two guys are paid by Red Hat, are you? And you work on the Fedora project. I'm paid by Red Hat as you know, Fedora program manager. Yeah. I'm. Uh, well, my my job doesn't really involve uh, any Fedora activities. May it's a bit related, but not really. So what I'm doing for Fedora is pretty much uh, my hobby activity. But uh, Red Hat is an employer, and my my manager are very tolerant to this, so I can pretty much me I can work on federal activities during, for example, my work hours if it's necessary. So they, they wouldn't be probably possible if I worked for someone else. 
And uh, where have you guys come from? Where are you based? Oh. Uh, we are based in Brno, Czech Republic. Okay. It's where Red Hat has the largest engineering office in the world currently, almost 700 engineers. So it's already a large, large office. So you're familiar with good quality beer then still? Yeah. <laughs> okay, have I missed anything else, guys? Or have we covered everything? Thank you, thank you for doing an interview with us. Not a problem, I'll talk to anyone. <laughs> okay, talk to you later. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HPR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 License.